0: Lord Heavenly Father, you've given us another week to, to be here, to learn your word, to hear from you, Lord. So now as together we open up the word, the word, and we hear from you, Lord. And we just continue to see how much you want us to be united, Lord. And that at the cross... That's where the source of all unity comes. Speak to us this morning in a powerful way, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be in verse, starting off in verse 18. For the word of of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who was wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews as for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wider, wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. When um, Jacob was 10 years old, when he turned 10 years old, we, uh, one of the things we decided to do was take a trip to New York City and it was amazing i've never been there i don't know if any of you have been there but it was it was our first time and and it was quite an experience i mean we saw a lot we walked a lot we had some good times and i'm pretty sure uh, these memories that we had there you know will stick with these kids for the rest of their lives but one of the places we decided to visit was um, liberty island where the statue of liberty was located. And we had to take a ferry out there. And I remember when we were, I forgot, I, I don't quite remember the area where we took it from, but I remember that when, we, when I first looked upon it, it looked really small, tiny. But as we got into the ferry and started approaching it, it started to grow in size, bigger and bigger and bigger. And once we got to the base of the Statue of Liberty, man, you just look up and you're like, man, this is huge. This is ginormous. And I could only imagine what it seemed like to a 10-year-old kid and, a, how old were you, Anthony? Like, eight-year-old kid, about Bella's age. You know, just looking at that. And, and the same thing with the Empire State Building. We went there too, and you're like, man, you, it looks tall, really big looking up. And when you're looking down from the top, you're like, man, this is nuts. Scary. Um, Same thing. We went to one time. We went to Chicago to the Sears Tower up there, and they have a. When you go to the viewing area, there's a floor that's just viewing area. They have a section where you can. They have a clear glass area where you can step out, and it's clear in the bottom, and you look down. It's it's just a trip. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's that's pretty neat too. Um, But. I wanted to mention that about the Statue of Liberty um, Empire State Building because what I realized is we drew closer, the larger again it grew. And the larger it grew, the more we seemed to shrink. This is what drawing close to God or drawing close to something awesome will do. It will make you feel smaller and smaller by comparison. This is precisely the dynamic that occurs in our own hearts when we draw near to the starkest, most awesomest exhi- exhibition of God's power, glory, and wisdom, the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's, and it's this that Paul hopes the readers will understand in this passage. In these eight verses, Paul puts put, put forth the essential contrast between God's wisdom and the wisdom of the world. In verse 18, he, provi- he provides the thesis sentence, which sums up the point of the first paragraph. Uh, I don't know if you guys know what a thesis statement is, but it's the main point, the main sense that says why you know, you're covering everything. What's the main point of the whole paragraph or the whole story or uh, of a whole paper? Paul's thesis affirms that there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those in the process of perishing and those in the process of being saved. Those in the process of perishing perishing, view the cross as foolish. Those in the process of being saved view the cross as a display of God's power. In the first century, crucifixion was viewed with universal disgust. Anybody that thought or talked about the, the crucifixion um, saw it as, as just completely disgusting. As a matter of fact, people viewed the cross as disgustingly stupid. I, can only, I would think that like if, if you heard about someone dying of eating those Tide Pods, you, I, know, I don't know if you guys heard about that, but... There was, I don't know if it still is, but there was this uh, fad or whatever that these teenage kids were eating Tide Pods and either getting really sick or dying from them. Well, anyways, that's how they viewed the cross as just disgustingly stupid. But for Christians who are saved, the cross is seen as God's powerful instrument of their salvation. Paul wanted the Christians at Corinth to view the cross as the highest exhibition of God's love, wisdom, and strength. Verse 19 supplies the scriptural support for Paul's thesis. His scriptural proof comes from Isaiah 29.14, in which the prophet is proclaiming God's intentions to judge Israel for her superficial and hypocritical religion. This judgment, he says, would be, would be to destroy the wisdom of the wise and set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Paul was saying that the message of, of the cross does exactly that. The cross is the power of God that obliter- obliterates the worldly wisdom of leaders and frustrates all forms of human intellectualism. In his book, The Case for Christ," Lee Strobel wrote. To be honest, I didn't want to believe that Christianity could radically transform someone's character and values. It was much easier to raise doubts and manufacture outrageous objections than to consider the possibility that God actually could trigger a revolutionary turnaround in such a depraved and degenerate life. Verses 20 through 25 then begins to explain why the majority of people would reject the cross-centered gospel and why the Corinthians should nevertheless believe it. In verse 20, Paul is speaking of the philosopher, the religious scholar, the debater, who at the time were were, were viewed by Jews and Greeks as the professional experts. He mentions these educated wise men in order to make the point that God has made them all foolish through his wisdom. In the next verse, in, in verse 21, Paul states that the reason God made their worldly wisdom foolish was because they refused to acknowledge his wisdom in using the cross of Jesus as his plan of salvation. However, for those that accepted the foolishness of the Gospel, God was pleased to save those who believed when they heard it preached. You see, God takes pleasure in accomplishing our salvation in a way no one would have expected. He is happy to do it this way, which offends the height of human wisdom. Paul expands upon the idea of how the world of unbelieving Jews and Gentiles acknowledged neither God nor the Gospels, nor, or nor, nor His Gospel. First, he mentions that the Jews asked for a sign. In Paul's day, the Jewish world was looking for the arrival of the Messiah that would do more spe- spectacular works than Moses. He would do, that this new Messiah would come and he would just do some, Crazy, amazing miracles, greater than any prophet, greater than Moses. Great, and, and Moses is like on top, on their top, and that he would do greater things than parting the Red Sea. However, when Jesus Christ was among them, they not only refused to recognize the signs he, re- he performed, but they also refused to acknowledge the validity of his greatest sign. And what was that greatest sign? His resurrection. Jesus' death on the cross was a stumbling block for them because they couldn't accept a Messiah who was crucified as a criminal. Paul then mentions the Greeks, that that, that Greeks seek wisdom. Back then, the Greek culture valued the pursuit of wisdom, usually expressed in high academic philosophical terms so the notion that they could attain divine wisdom from an uneducated crucified Jewish carpenter was foolish and thus a stumbling block for them he then says in verse 24 yet those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God what he's saying here is that, is that when the Spirit of God touches and convicts a person, regardless of the race, their ethnicity, regardless of the life they lived, regardless of male, female, regardless of anything, they will find in the cross of Jesus God's wisdom and power. I like what Warren Wiersbe said about this verse. Those who have been called by God's grace and who have responded by faith realize that Christ is God's power and God's wisdom, not the Christ of the manger or the temple or the marketplace, but the Christ of the cross. It is in the death of Christ that God has revealed the foolishness of man's wisdom and the weakness of man's power. Paul ends the sentence he began in verse 21 by saying in verse 25, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Paul is suggesting that if, and this is a, a big if, if it was possible for God to be foolish and weak, even his foolishness and weakness would still overwhelm us. That which is least clever or powerful of all about God still greatly surpasses the most stupendous achievement of all humanity. Before I gave my life to the Lord, I remember someone coming up to me, to, to and this was when I was young, this was maybe in my late teens, uh, early, probably my late teens, before I turned 20, before I gave my life to the Lord, um, this guy came to share the gospel with me. And he did this by showing me a crucifix, uh, a cross that he was wearing. And he asked me a question. He asked me what I thought about when I saw the cross, what I thought about when I saw Jesus hanging on the cross. And I replied that when I saw it, what I, what I thought the cross, that the cross was nothing but a Christian symbol. I thought it was just something that Christians saw and it was just Jesus hanging on the cross. It was just a Christian symbol, just like every other religion, religion has their own, Uh, symbols and signs and all that and that I felt sadness in seeing that cross seeing Jesus hanging there that's that's what I felt just sadness seeing this man hanging there with nails in his hands and on his feet bleeding the crown of thorns now afterwards he explained to me what the cross truly truly meant and I remember thinking that I'd never heard it that way. I'd never heard it explained in that manner. That explanation left a lasting impression on me. And I never forgot that conversation. I never forgot how he explained it to me. And ever since then, it just changed it, it, it completely changed my perspective on the cross. Now, although it took a few years to connect how this new perspective personally applied to me, God revealed the truth of the cross to me through that guy. Through these words that Paul wrote, I want to share some important truths about the cross of Jesus Christ in hopes of also maybe giving you, maybe some of you, a new perspective. Firstly, the cross of Jesus is the highest exhibition of God's love, wisdom, and power. The Bible tells us that God exhibited his love in a way that no one ever could. Romans 5.8 says that God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved you so much. He cared about you so much that he sent his only son Not only to die for you, but to also set you free from the bondage of sin. The wisdom of God is fully exhibited on the cross. In his infinite wisdom, God designed a plan that in no way compromised his holiness or left his righteousness unfulfilled. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Now listen carefully, he says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace that He richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. And God exhibited his power on the cross. If you want to see God in all his power, Take a look at at Jesus Christ dying on a cross. It's at the cross that God in Christ conquered death, hell, and sin. Secondly, the cross of Jesus is God's plan of salvation. I don't think any of us, if we were to sit down, plan, and strategize how God ought to save humanity, I don't think any of us would have came up with a plan like the crucifixion. In our wisdom, we would have made it much more confusing, much more complex, and probably unfair where some people benefited and maybe not others. Maybe our family would benefit more from it our friends would benefit more from it than, let's say, our enemies. In the death of Christ, God displayed his own sheer genius in masterminding a plan of salvation whereby he remained both just and the justifier. If we had a million lifetimes to think and create means by which a holy God would accept sinful man, Again, I don't think we would ever come up with the cross. Only the inscrutable wisdom of God could have thought of it. And thirdly, the cross of Jesus is unbiased and impartial. It's the only place anyone can go and be fully loved, fully accepted, fully healed, and fully forgiven. When someone cro- comes to the cross, they won't be discriminated against. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 says, For there is no favoritism with God. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done, or even what you haven't done. At the cross, all are welcomed. All are embraced and all can be forgiven. When Peter realized that God had revealed himself to a non-Jewish Roman soldier in a powerful way, he said in Acts chapter 10 verses 34 and 35, now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Let me, again, just reiterate that, that anybody can come to the cross. Man, woman, you know, black, white, Mexican, Asian, gay, straight. Well, anybody can come to the cross and they're going to be fully accepted. God embraces them. God loves them. The world may have a different opinion. Some religions may have different opinions. But we have such a great and loving God that He, again, He died. He sent His Son to die for every single human being. So my question to you is this. What does the cross of Jesus mean to you? How you answer that question will determine if if you're in the process of perishing or in the process of being sanctified. John's thought shares this brilliant thought. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I turned to that lonely, twisted, torture figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, 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 brow bleeding from the thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God's forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his immunity to pain. He entered all world of the flesh, of of flesh and blood, tears, and death. Let's finish off the chapter one. We left off in verse twenty six, and that's what we'll be. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty six. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence it is from him that you are in christ jesus who became wisdom from god for us our righteousness sanctification and redemption in order that it is written let no one who boasts or let the one who boasts boast in the lord in this last section paul defends his claim that the message of the gospel is centered on the cross by reminding them of who they were before accepting the message of Jesus, before accepting the message of the cross. He begins by taking Christian, the Christians at Corinth back to their spiritual roots by reminding them that they weren't wise, mighty, or noble when God saved them. Now, many of us could probably say the same thing. When God saved me, I wasn't anybody. I wasn't anyone important. I wasn't anyone special. I wasn't a superstar. I wasn't you know, a great politician. I wasn't a president or a king. I was just a simple guy when God saved me. And that's what he's telling these Corinthians. God called them not because of what they were, but in spite of what they were. The Corinthian church was compromised primarily of ordinary people who were terrible sinners, yet they were not too sinful for God to reach and save them. Paul's underlying message here is that God prefers the losers of this world. Understand that God prefers the losers of this world. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God sees Christians as losers. He doesn't look at you and say, ha, ah, you're a loser. You know, he doesn't, it's not what he's talking about here, or that's not what I'm talking about here. Rather, when God calls, I'm sorry, yeah, when God calls people to his family, he intentionally chooses whom the world rejects. He's 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 saying that, you know, he's accepting the rejects of the world. He prefers the weak over the strong, the forgotten over the famous, and the nobodies over the somebodies. He starts with the people of the world that the world chooses last, and actually prefers to to choose the weak instead of the strong. Imagine a group of children about to pick sides for a game of kickball. And maybe you've been in this situation before. I know I have several times when I was a kid, and even as an adult. <laughs> we know the drill, don't we? The best two players are selected as captains and they in turn will, will be the best players they can for their teams, but just suppose the two who were always picked last were given the chance to be captains. Suppose the game unfolds as an exercise in having fun, not just winning the game. Suppose the teams were delighted in having captains who can't kick or field well, but just love to play. And that love becomes infectious. Never will, will, it never will happen, will it? In the world of team sports, even at a, play, at a playground level, we want those who can perform. Well, guess what? God loves to pick the ones picked last. In verses 27 and 28, Paul reminds the Christians at Corinth of why God chose them. Here's how the NLT, the New Living Translation, puts verses 27 and 28. God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Let me illustrate what this, what he means by this. When the world turns to a party, when a world throws a party, who do they invite? The beautiful people are always invited. They rent a nightclub and hire a security team to keep the ordinary people out. Only the in crowd makes it past the rope line helicopter circle overhead and the paparazzi strain to get a picture so they can sell sell it to People magazine. It's all about who shows up and who's wearing what kind of dress and trying to match this man with that woman. That's how the world throws a party. But God does it differently. God chooses those that have nothing to brag about God chooses people that no one would invite to a party he includes those who would normally be excluded listen carefully he does this so that he can subvert invert and convert human values did you get that he does this so that he can subvert, invert and convert human values. He does this to shame the wise, the strong and to bring nothing the things that are impressive to our world. Why does God choose to have why does God choose those that have nothing to brag about? Well, Paul answers this question in verse 29 so that no one may boast in his presence. In other words, God determined to choose despised ones, those who embrace the foolishness of the cross, so that no one can boast about his human accomplishments or their position in his presence. God wants believers to constantly recognize they have nothing to brag about before him. Rather, they're completely indebted to him. Finally, in verses 30 and 31, Paul reminds the Christians at Corinth of all that they had in Jesus. In Christ, believers possess the wisdom of God and have received all the benefits that come from the cross. And there, in in, verses 30 and 31, he states three. Believers have been given God's righteousness, meaning they've been made right with God, right with themselves, and right with other people. Believers have received God's sanctification, meaning they've been set apart, made holy, both personally and practically and believers have received God's redemption through Christ has purchased the believer from the power of sin therefore because of these benefits Christians can properly boast not in their own achievements but in the Lord. Paul references Jeremiah chapter nine, verses 23 and 24, to show that those who have nothing to brag about can boldly brag about what God did for them through the cross. If you've ever wondered what kind of people God chooses to be part of his family, these verses help answer that question. I have no doubt that there are a lot of you who, who maybe at one time or maybe even now believe that God can't possibly choose you. And as I said, maybe some of you that are watching or listening have struggled with some of these thoughts. If so, let me point out what verses 26 through 31 tells us about the sort of people that God chooses. And some of, these, some of these may sound familiar from what I've said before, but God intentionally chooses the losers of this world. God deliberately chooses the forgotten of the world. And He prefers the company of the poor. He loves to save the uneducated, the foolish, the addicted. The broken, the downcast, and the imprisoned. In short, he specializes in saving those whom the world counts as nothing. A simple, uneducated, untalented, and clumsy believer who trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior and who faithfully and humbly follows the, his Lord is immeasurably wiser than the brilliant PhD who scoffs, ridicules, and mocks at the gospel. The simple believer knows forgiveness, knows love, knows grace, knows life, and knows hope. And they know it because the Word of God has told them, because the Word of God has revealed it to them through the cross. The unbelieving, and I'm not putting down anybody that has a PhD, okay, just saying. The unbelieving PhD, on the other hand, knows nothing beyond his books, his own mind, and his own experience. God chooses those that have nothing to brag about. Everybody who's somebody in the world typically has something to brag about. Again, imagine that famous person in your head and and you probably heard them mentioning something on TV or on their social media, bragging about something. The wealthy tend to brag about how much money they have. Politicians tend to brag about what they've done or what they plan to do. Entertainers, musicians, athletes tend to brag about numbers and popularity. And the religious often tend to brag about all the things they've done in the name of God, all the works, I've done this and I've done that, and, and you know I've been around the world and all over the place, and that's how religious I am. Look at all, all that I've done for God. That's how they tend to brag. God, however, prefers to call those that don't have any of these things to brag about so that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord as God continues to transform you into the image of Christ. Your life will echo the words written in Galatians 6, verse 14. I'll never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the, lo- to the world. And lastly, God chooses those that have plenty of sin and weaknesses. The Bible is full of stories of how God chose adulterers, conmen, prostitutes, murderers, thieves, and the physically disabled to do great things for him. This ought to, these stories ought to convince you that if God chose them nothing you've done in the past and nothing and and who you are now will keep him from choosing you why does God choose people with messed up backgrounds and messed up lives like you and me because of his love and for his glory. To be a blessing to others and to share the love he's given you with those around you. You see, God chooses people who once had messed up life, who once had a messed up life to show others who currently have messed up lives that in jesus christ there is redemption forgiveness hope and peace in first timothy chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 paul wrote christ jesus came to the world to save sinners and i am the worst of them but i received a mercy for this reason so that in me the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate His extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in Him for eternal life. God can and will use you in spite of your past. You just have to be willing. The cross of Jesus Christ is the most awesome exhibition of God's power, glory, and wisdom. Do you guys see that? I hope that again it just it's it's made more sense to you of how great the cross is. It's very easy to 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 think of the cross and or not think much about it. But if you really spend time studying what the cross means, man, it, it, it's, it'll bring you to your knees. And you see, you get a, a taste, just a, a taste of how wise, how powerful God is. And He has revealed it you he has shown it to you and you accepted it if you've accepted it but too many they see the cross and it just dumbfounds them and I don't get it why do people worship or why do pe- why is the cross so important why is it more important than the the that crescent moon and the star you know, why is it more important than, than these, than the Buddha or than, than uh, these elephants, these other gods? Why? They just, it, it doesn't, they don't have that connection because they don't see. They're trying to figure it out with their minds, they're trying to figure it out in their own human um, intelligence. But through the Holy Spirit, God shows us. God has showed you what the cross is. And if he hasn't showed you yet, all you've got to do is just ask him. Lord, show me. Help me to understand what the cross is. I, I, I want to know you more. I want to get you more. Why did Jesus have to die? And you know what he'll reveal it to you he'll show you either through his word or through other people but you can't reject it you can't someone comes up to you tries to explain you can't just blow them off and say oh you know what you're i want to hear you out you're dumb you're just a dumb christian give them an opportunity god may be speaking to you through that person just like he spoke to me when that person described what the cross really was. I don't see the cross now as, or Jesus hanging on that cross as as a sad thing. I see it as a glorious thing. I see it, you know, I I now understand what it means, what it meant when, when people talked about the passion of Christ. I now see the cross as just His love, not just for all of humanity, but for me, for you. His great love for you. If you see that now, if you've recognized that now and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never bowed, your knee to him and made him the Lord of your life. I want to invite you to do that. I want to just share a, a prayer with you that you can just repeat and you know from the sincerity of your heart. Don't just repeat it, just to repeat it. But just from the sincerity of your your heart. Pray it. Pray to accept Jesus into your heart. And again, I'll lead you in a in a prayer bit. this is gonna radically transform and change your life. Don't let that scare you though. Don't let that intimidate you. God is gonna take care of you step by step along the way, but you gotta surround yourself with other Christians. You gotta yourself, uh, surround yourself with other You gotta get into the word and, but if you're willing, if you're able, if you just, if that's what you really want, And just wherever you're at, close your eyes and just repeat this prayer from the bottom of your heart. Lord God, I believe, I know that I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. And I repent of my sins. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I confess that He is Lord. I accept Your forgiveness, Lord. I receive Your forgiveness. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit so that I may know you, so that I may understand you, and so that I may follow you. Be with me the rest of my life as I walk with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. The cross is for you. It's for me. It's for everybody. Don't ever forget that. Let's, let's close once again with the word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you that you've provided a plan of salvation that no one else could have thought of that no human intelligence ingenuity any human mind could have conceived in your own infinite wisdom you chose the crucifixion and although it was hurtful although it just pained you to see your one and only son being tortured, being beaten, being mistreated in that way, being crucified. You did it for us. That was your plan all along, Lord, and we will forever just be thankful We're thankful now that you have adopted us, that you have received us as your own, and that the blood of Christ now covers us, and that we have the forgiveness of sins, and that we'll be with you for all eternity. Lord, may we just continue to be fools for you. May we continue just to proclaim your name even though the world hates you, even though the world doesn't understand you. May we just continue to be fools for you. Thank you again for picking the losers, picking the weak, picking the uneducated. And so we boast in you Lord bless this week Lord bless everyone that's here watch over them protect them wherever they are protect their families Lord come soon we're so looking forward to being with you embracing you loving you bless this next time Lord bless this next time of fellowship we pray these things in Jesus name Amen.